Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Well, welcome back to another session. And as I was doing some writing today, I realized something that ties into exactly what I want to talk about. Ten years ago, around the first part of February 2012, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal by the name of Jeff Zaslow died in a car accident. And Jeff was quite popular columnist during that period of time for the journal. And probably his most noted work was being the author of um, the last lecture. I think he actually co-authored that with uh, Randy Posh, which uh, you can look it up, was just quite, quite touching. Translated into 48 languages, number one bestseller list for, I don't know, well over two years, five million copies sold. So why do I mention him? Well, interestingly, because of some emails that I sent to him, uh, he attended the first workshop we ever did at OnSite. And I think that was in 2000 seven maybe and he he wrote a column on it and I could tell you exactly if I was at my office I have it uh, framed on my wall I remember there was quite a bit of dynamic around him attending you know uh, Wall Street (laughs) Journal reporters don't attend uh, financial therapy groups (laughs) and uh, we really worked with that to keep uh, all the participants safe and give him some access to arguably which was the first financial therapy workshop in history. So he had a column called Moving On and he did uh, he broke that experience in that column and um, I think the headline was something like another thing to blame your parents on which I remember that Ted Klontz and I were kind of gathered in uh, his office, knowing this was going to come out, and uh, got the paper and looked at that headline, and our hearts just sank. Because when you read the column, it was nothing about that. And fortunately, having been a columnist for over 30 years myself, I realized that writers don't write their their headline. So there was a big disconnect between <laughs> what he wrote and what the copy editor wrote as a headline. So just uh, remembering him for that and and what really ties into what I want to talk about is that he did a follow-up column several years later and the uh, column was on financial infidelity. It was the first time I ever heard those words and I don't know who coined it but as far as I know it could have been Jeff himself 
that coined the term financial infidelity. And it was so notable being um, interviewed by Jeff. I came home from probably a 30-minute interview with him on the phone. I told my wife that being interviewed by Jeff was like being caught in a blender. His style of questioning was intense and relentless. And he probably got more out of 30 minutes than a lot of reporters would get out of an hour and 30 minutes. So it's about financial infidelity that I'd like to talk about because I realized in doing some research, while I've mentioned it in columns and I I hit on the, the concept in uh, a column I wrote in December of 21, I haven't talked about the specifics of financial infidelity since 2006. That's uh, quite a while ago. So I thought it might be uh, worth it to bring that to the podcast and discuss this topic because it is a very, very common dynamic in committed relationships. So let me start by saying that Talking about money isn't something we do a lot when the focus is on our personal money, right? We're perfectly willing to talk a lot about other people's money, cost of government programs, cost of living, our personal taxes, public policy on taxing profits, and capitalism and socialism and things like that. But what we don't talk about is our personal money, especially our money secrets, right? Because it wouldn't be a secret if we talked about it. And we do keep secrets a lot about money. I mean, um, imagine talking about your salary or your net worth or the amount of your credit card debt at some public gathering or reception or posting that on social media, you know? Is you think, just think about that. Just think about putting out your net worth and some of these things publicly. What feelings come up inside of you? I think it'd be pretty normal to experience humiliation, panic, shame. They could be so overwhelming that you actually dissociate, don't feel anything. So as we know through the podcast, we've talk, talked about this, that talking about our relationship with money. And uh, our personal money is not something that's supported by our society. So we keep secrets from the world, right? But keeping secrets in a committed romantic relationship around other significant intimate relationships usually doesn't end well. I think it's important to note that an intimate relationship while it can include other people, it is not necessarily only a relationship with people we're talking about. It can include intimate relationships with non-human relationships like substances, uh, nicotine, alcohol, narcotics, food, and money. We all have relationships with money, I think. <clears throat> We know that. But the first time I ever heard of 
a, quote, relationship with money, end quote, I kind of like, what? <laughs> what is that? I mean, it just didn't land. I had done enough work in the mental health profession and enough therapy, therapy groups myself, that I got what a relationship with like nicotine was or alcohol was or narcotics. So I can make those connections, which could be equally confusing to a person the first time they hear that. But I just, I couldn't connect with what a relationship with money was. But when I considered that the very meaning of a relationship was the way objects or people connect or how a person behaves toward the other, in this case, thing, the light bulb came on. It was like, okay, yeah, all right. I have a connection with money. All of us do. It touches everything that we do. And I have behaviors around money. My behaviors are so unconscious, it's, it, it was kind of hard to flesh those out. But as I did, it was like, oh, yeah, everybody has specific behaviors around money. So definitely, I had a relationship with money. So in a relationship, typically there is a promise, openness, transparency, exclusivity. And I'm, I'm talking about in a romantic relationship primarily. So keeping another significant relationship a secret is typically an act of breaking that promise. So when these secret relationships are with people, and that's where our minds would go, right? Relationships with, with other people. Uh, and especially people to whom we are romantically or sexually attracted. We would call those secret relationships an emotional or a sexual affair, with the emphasis being on affair. A more specific term would be infidelity or acts of infidelity. When the secret relationship involves money, Jeff Zaslow coined that financial infidelity. And that's a term that has caught on and I think is pretty common. You know, I've, I've read a fair amount about financial infidelity over the years. Now, maybe listening to this podcast, you've never uh, considered such a term. You might find that term kind of somewhat offensive of uh, that it's around keeping money secrets. And what I I find is that a lot of people who wouldn't dream of betraying their partners by having an illicit affair emotionally or sexually may be committing financial infidelity. And the truth is it's quite common. Being any infidelity, but especially financial infidelity to a partner can be just as damaging as an emotional or a sexual affair. Keeping financial secrets in a marriage, some research found, adversely affects the relationship in three out of four marriages. And if you're 
curious about where you can find that. It was a survey done by the National Endowment for Financial Education, which was cited uh, in a CNBC article by Jessica Dickler in February, February 12th of 2020. And in that article, they cited a survey from creditcards.com that had some really interesting statistics. Found that 44% of couples keep secrets from each other around money. 44%. And honestly, that's very consistent with um, other surveys that we've seen. It, it's usually in the 40% range that couples commit financial infidelity. I would suggest that's probably higher than emotional or sexual infidelity. I don't have any numbers right in front of me, but it just doesn't land right with me to say, yeah, you know, 44% of couples are engaged in some type of an affair. <laughs> I could be wrong, but it's all it's significant is my point. And usually this inf financial infidelity is around spending more than they feel their significant other would be comfortable with. So spend, hiding spending. It's also common to hide debt. So 36% uh, uh, cited the need for secrecy to control their own finances. 27% said that there's no issue of financial infidelity that ever came up. But 26% said that they were embarrassed in how that they handled money. So exactly what is financial infidelity? Well, I would suggest that it's any secret around money that you would feel ashamed to have your partner discover. So it could be loaning, borrowing, spending, saving, um, giving, or receiving money. Any of those things that you, if, if it was known by your partner or spouse, that would you'd feel shame around, uh, probably is involved with financial infidelity. And I, I want to be clear that respecting privacy and autonomy is important. There is a difference between secrecy and privacy. And the difference can be complicated to flesh out, and especially in non-traditional families or second marriages. So let me give you some examples of financial infidelity. The first one may be maintaining a secret stash of cash. It could involve literally hiding cash or keeping a separate checking account savings account, investment account, something that isn't known by the partner. I realize that there could be some situations where a um, secret stash of cash, there's usually always good intention, you know, but I, I'm thinking in a case of uh, where there's um, domestic abuse, physical abuse going on, and maybe one partner is saving money so they can get away. All right. So, there's exceptions in all of this, all right? But I'm just talking out straight out. I've got money that my spouse doesn't know about, and I would feel 
shame if they found out about it. Another one is spending a significant amount from joint funds without first discussing the purchase with the partner. All right? The fact that the, the lawn tractor was for both of you or the suit was on sale and too good of a bargain to pass up doesn't justify making a unilateral decision if the agreement is we are to make unilateral decisions. And we'll talk about how to modify that. Another is lying to your partner about the cost of things you purchase. Now, whether this qualifies as financial infidelity has nothing to do with the amounts involved. Saying the new shoes that you bought were on sale when you paid full price for them is just as much a betrayal as lying about the price of a vacation home or a boat. Okay? So the uh, price tag isn't the point. The point is betrayal is in the dishonesty, not the dollar amount. Another is uh, hiding income or assets from your partner. This could be like the secret cash stash. This could include lying about how much you earn, uh, hiding bonuses, being dishonest about your net worth, uh, accepting secret gifts, parents, other real relatives, other people. So, again, would you feel shame or, or in these things that you're keeping from your partner? Another is overspending and hiding the things you buy from your partner. An all too common example of this is a partner who buys clothes, takes the tags off, hides the clothes in the closet for a time so later they can say, oh, no, this isn't new. Like, oh, where'd you get that? Is that new? No, I've had that for months or years or whatever the case may be. You know, there's a little grain of truth in there, but basically it is uh, covering up the spending. It's a secret. Spending money on or giving money to children or other relatives without telling your partner. This can be a big one. So allowing a child to manipulate you or play you against the other is a real common aspect of this behavior. Again, you're supporting, enabling potentially that child, but your partner doesn't know about it. Not only is that damaging to the relationship, but it's teaching the kids really inappropriate or destructive financial habits and potentially enabling them, taking away their power to suffer life lessons, the consequences of life lessons. And we've talked about that before on the podcast. Another is going to parents or other family members for emergency loans or gifts without discussing that with your partner. So that's really going over the head of your partner, which is disrespectful to them. And again, damaging of the relationship. It implies that your partner isn't good enough to support the family or that you and your partner can't solve your own financial problems. And then I'm sure there's many other implications, which it could be 
getting those loans and getting that money to cover up other secrets, right? So it can be compounded. Still another is risking joint resources for investments or business purposes without your partner's knowledge or agreement. So an example of this would be taking out a second mortgage on your home to potentially buy equipment for your business. Now, sometimes, depending how the home is titled or whatnot, that you may not be able to do that without your partner's agreement or signature on it, but sometimes you can do that or in any way risk other resources. I mean, it could be taking out a huge loan on the business that really risks the family's income without discussing that or disclosing that to your partner. So these are just some of the things that uh, come to mind. I am positive this is not an inclusive list of things, but maybe something that will painfully jog (laughs) your awareness that, oh, my. And maybe it'd be worth mentioning this, going back to my story about Jeff Zaslow when he interviewed me. I came home and I told my wife about it. And she, uh, she's quiet for a while because I'm talking about financial infidelity. And she's, she says, well, I've got a secret, a money secret that I haven't told you about. And I was just like, stunned. What? Yeah, I've just never told you about it. And I'm thinking, oh my, wow, what is this? And I'm thinking, okay, so how big is this? And I said, well, would you like to tell me? Yes. I'm supporting a uh, young girl in, I think it was India. And I send 20 or $40 a month to her. And it's, it's out of my money that I get, but I just wanted to, to do something. It was my way to contribute. And I, I've never told you about it. So I was relieved, right? Because that's something I could support. And I don't, I think she felt shame in the moment that she hadn't told me about it. But um, I was relieved. You know, like, oh, great. Oh, good. (laughs) So, you know, not every financial secret is financial infidelity. I think it's important to keep in mind something that's influenced by internal family systems. And that is all of the behaviors around Uh, Anything that would be deemed as financial infidelity, keeping a secret, typically have a good intention behind them. When we really drill down to the part of us that is keeping the secret, there is usually the intention that's good, usually an, an intention that's good. And it's usually an intention that goes way, way, way back, even to childhood in a behavior to keep, to keep us safe. And when those are explored, that can really enlighten that behavior. Now, obviously the behavior today is not having the intended 
uh, affect what was good for us as a eight-year-old or a ten-year-old is, and maybe keeping some type of secret to protect ourselves is not necessarily helpful today. So the other thing to keep in mind is that the problem is not exclusively the partner keeping the secret, right? You might think, yeah, wow, uh, everything would be great if my partner hadn't been keeping that secret or just listening to this. Well, yeah, I don't keep secrets. Obviously, the problem is the partner keeping the secret. Each partner has a contribution to the financial infidelity. As Ted Klotz often said, we are all 100% responsible for the 50% of every relationship that we have responsibility for. So, as you know, kind of a theme of this podcast is any financial behavior, uh, no matter how illogical it is to you or others makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs and intentions around that. So, if you have found yourself to be a little, I guess you don't get a little guilty, you're just guilty of financial infidelity, I want you to know that it's uh, normal. It happens in almost half of relationships. And there's things that you can do. And in our next podcast, we're going to cover some of the ways that we get ourselves into financial infidelity and eventually what we can do to dig out of it. So thanks for listening and I will talk with you next time. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember every financial behavior whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.